You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Let's turn now to the question of natural right and natural rights. The distinction being that Aristotle and Aquinas clearly teach natural right. Right means justice, that there is something just by nature. And we'll see what Aquinas's explanation of natural right entails. Then take a look at the modern notion of natural rights and see how it has a different emphasis and meaning and then how Maritain and Simone seek to appropriate the modern notion of natural rights in accord with Thomistic teaching. If we look at Thomas's teaching on justice in the Summa, the second part of the second part, question 57, article 1, Thomas says that right is the object of justice, that justice seeks to attain what is right. And he says the right is made known by equality, that there's some measure of equality between two claims that justice seeks to find. He goes on in the next article to make this classic distinction between natural right and positive right, or what is right by nature and what is right by convention. Those aren't terms of opposition, but the more fundamental right is the natural right, that there is some order in nature, which is prior to human conventions and law. Justice, he will go on in question 58 to define as a perpetual and constant will to render to each one his right. So justice is that virtue, that habit of the will, which leads an individual to give another his due. It is the most social of the virtues because its mean is found not in the passions or dispositions of the subject, but it is a mean found externally between two people. So another way of formulating this is that justice is always toward another. Justice then is the most social of the virtues. Now, a further distinction that Thomas will make that we need to consider is a distinction between two kinds of justice. That is the distinction between commutative and distributive justice. Joseph Pieper has a very good treatment of this in the Four Cardinal Virtues, and an interesting chart can be found there. This is from the Summa, second part of the second part, question 61, article 1, in which Thomas explains it as follows. A twofold order may be considered in relation to the part. There is the order of one part to another, which corresponds to the order of one private individual to another. 
This is the order directed by commutative justice, which is concerned about the mutual dealings between two persons. In the second place, there is the order of the whole towards the parts, to which corresponds the order of that which belongs to the community in relation to each single person. This order is directed by distributive justice, which distributes common goods proportionately. Hence, there are two species of justice, distributive and commutative. To put this in other terms, commutative justice is about everyday exchanges between two individuals. So justice would be determined by a concept of fairness or equality in exchange. Now again, that's the general principle of natural right. How to specify that requires prudence, determinations of law, and I'll refer to Yves Simon's treatment of commutative justice and philosophy of democratic government, in which he goes into great detail about modern economics and some other issues. Distributive justice, on the other hand, is how the parts or each person stands in relation to the whole. That is, how the common good, how the community itself will distribute various goods and burdens. So, for example, it's a question of distributive justice. Who should bear the burden, say, of defending the country? This was a matter of great controversy during the Vietnam War since it seemed that there was an unequal distribution, an unfair distribution to the poor and minorities, and white middle class people were able to avoid going to the Vietnam War. That would be a classic case of distributive justice. It also has to do not even primarily with how material goods are distributed, but how the honor and offices are distributed. So if we turn to the next article, this is question 61, article 2. Thomas also explains the different mean observed by distributive as opposed to commutative justice. And again, the classic formulation taken from Aristotle is that commutative justice must observe an absolute mean or the simple equality between two partners. What this means is that there is no distinction of persons when it comes to purchasing something that it's an equal or fair price as best as that can be determined. On the other hand, distributive justice requires what is called a proportionate equality, that the equality does depend upon some kind of proportion. I'll just read some of the Aquinas here. He says, in distributive justice, the mean to be observed is not according to the equality between thing and thing, but between a proportion between things and persons in such a way that even as one person surpasses another, so also that which is given to one person surpasses that which is allotted to another. For example, we say that six is to four as three is to two. That's proportionate equality. Now, following Aristotle, 
St. Thomas will acknowledge then that our concept of justice must go beyond simple equality, or what's called an arithmetical mean, but acknowledge proportionate equality, so that merit is an essential part of justice. To not deal with merit, simply to seek equality, the same measure for all, would be unjust, according to Aquinas. Now, I think it's worth briefly looking back into Aristotle in the Politics, Book 3, Chapter 12 and 13. He shows how distributive justice is inherently controversial, that it is a political matter. It involves political principle, and it's often distorted by partisan politics. Here he says, in all arts and sciences, the end in view is some good. In politics, the end in view is justice. And justice consists in what tends to promote the common good. General opinion makes it consist in some sort of equality. See, justice is about equality. Up to a point, this general opinion agrees with the philosophic inquiries that justice involves two factors, things and the persons to whom things are assigned. But here there arises a question which must not be overlooked. Equals and unequals, yes. But equals and unequals in what? This is a question which raises difficulties and involves us in philosophical speculation on politics. And he goes on to explain how the whole problem of politics is the Democratic Party, with a small d, seeks equality in terms of the same. Equal in all respects, the oligarchs and aristocratic principle seek to affirm unequal amounts to unequal people. See, the oligarchs thinking they're preeminence in wealth should give them a greater say in politics, and the aristocrats thinking they're unequal excellent should give them an unequal share. So it's from these conflicting claims that arise the great disputes of politics. Now turning to the modern notion of rights, perhaps we could say that the modern notion that we can trace back to Hobbes and Locke is an attempt to solve this political problem, to do away with the dispute that Aristotle thought was the stuff of politics, to solve once and for all the problem of faction and political disagreement. The way that this is to be done, however, is by developing a new concept beyond natural right to the notion of natural rights. And let me just explain briefly how this concept functions. Although it sounds very similar to the ancient teaching, and Locke himself and Hobbes also use natural law terminology, it is a new teaching, and a teaching that goes off in a radically new direction. Rather than a standard of natural right or natural law as an objective measure, Hobbes turns to the individual with no relation to community 
and simply derives from raw self-interest, from appetite and desire, a subjective claim to whatever it is that an individual desires. That is what he means by a natural right, that we all desire our own preservation, we all desire our own pleasure, we all desire various goods to acquire and to enjoy. And on top of it all, Hobbes says, we all must desire continual power, a seeking of power after power, in order to assure ourselves of further satisfaction. Now Hobbes admits right at the outset a number of peculiarities of his new teaching. Number one, this notion of a natural right based in subjectivity means that by nature there is no right or wrong. I'll just briefly try to explain this. Hobbes says that no one can be blamed for following their strong passion for preservation. We can't be blamed for doing whatever we need to do to defend ourselves if we live in a state of nature. We are impelled by necessity, he says, to protect ourselves and to seek our own satisfaction. Further, Hobbes says that this right is virtually unlimited. He does think in a state of nature we get this paradoxical situation that each has a claim to all. That is, each individual, from their own subjective point of view, has a right to whatever property someone else may own if I deem it's for my own satisfaction or interest. This is in a state of nature now, outside of civil government, which is already a strange abstraction that Aristotle would never allow because it's unreal to think of an individual outside of a polis. It will be the beast or God. So Hobbes says we all have an unlimited right. Each person has a right to the life of another. I can take your life if I judge that you are a threat to me. Now Hobbes, of course, realizes that this is a chaotic situation, that it will lead to a state of war of each against all, which he thinks is the natural condition of mankind, that we are inherently at odds. He says there are three reasons for war, this fundamental conflict between human beings. The first is competition, that we compete for scarce resources. The second is glory, that people have an inner drive to seek to predominate over others. And third, he says, through fear or diffidence, I may, through fear, get into conflict with someone whom I see as a threat. Now to get out of this state of war, which Hobbes says would make the life of man poor, nasty, solitary, brutish, and short, we must form a social contract. This is just a brief account of the modern liberal notion of rights. By this contract, the majority can agree to relinquish their full right to everything and lay down our right as much as another will equally so that we no longer claim that right to all. 
and we will just simply look for the protection of our own life, liberty, and property and give equal regard to the life, liberty, and property of others. This is the new basis of liberal modern rights. It's a minimal morality. It can be summed up in the phrase non-harm. As long as I do not harm you and your life, liberty, and property, I can enjoy my life, liberty, and property, again, with no other measure or standard than my own will or subjective preferences. I think as we see the development of modern Western societies, Hobbes seems to be more and more coming into his own as the teacher of morality and the way of life. It is a powerful and workable morality as far as it goes. Now Locke basically builds on to Hobbes, takes the Hobbesian notion, changes it only in its political expression on my reading of Locke. That is, Locke also roots natural rights in subjectivity and self-interest and sees it as a matter of rational self-interest to pursue a mutual acknowledgement of rights. But he also seeks to limit the sovereign power through majority rule and constitutionalism. Now, again, I think you can see why this teaching of rights was a matter of suspect by many Catholic thinkers because it did lower the goal of human life, although it affirmed, in some limited cases, freedom of conscience and religious freedom. For the most part, it was a freedom of indifference and set up a way of life which was not aimed at virtue or piety. So how did Maritain and Simone seek to provide an alternative account of rights? Maritain himself was involved in the drafting of the first United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. And in this book, Man in the State, he explains why the concept of rights are important in the modern world, because there are different theoretical constructs, different religious beliefs, different ways of life. He said it is useful in a pluralistic society that we have practical agreement over the list of human rights, even if we have different theoretical conceptions. But he says it does matter that an accurate account, that a sound philosophy of rights be provided. He thinks that the philosophy of the West has not developed one. He says in Man in the State on page 84 that this philosophy built no solid foundations for the rights of the human person because nothing can be founded on illusion. It compromised and squandered these rights because it led men to conceive them as rights in themselves divine, hence infinite, escaping every objective measure, denying every limitation imposed upon the claim of the ego, and ultimately expressing the absolute independence of the human subject, a so-called absolute right, 
which supposedly pertains to everything in the human subject by the mere fact that it is in him to unfold one's cherished possibilities at the expense of all other beings. I think the Canadian philosopher George Grant has mentioned how Roe versus Wade was a cup of poison held to the lips of the liberal because it showed that there was no foundation for human rights, that the notion of person was hopelessly muddled, that true restraint and limitation was not inscribed in this philosophy of rights if one could take the life of another by arbitrary dictate. So it's one of the great tasks of contemporary Thomistic philosophy to develop a philosophy of human rights. Maritain and Simone do so through their understanding of natural law. Basically, the argument goes like this, that they look for a notion of equality based upon unity of nature, that there is a universal human nature, that universality is the foundation for brotherhood, rights, and equal justice. See, that there is a human nature. And inscribed in this human nature, there are basic aspects intelligible necessities of human nature which demand to be respected and promoted. So they take the notion of natural law and natural right and give it a foundation in natural law on the basis of there being a common human nature. On page 96 of Man in the State, Maritain says that the idea of a human right naturally possessed by the human being prior and superior to written legislation by which the civil society does not grant but recognizes these rights can only be based in the following teaching. If each existing individual has a nature or essence which is the locus of intelligible necessities and necessary truths, that is to say, if nature is taken as a constellation of facts which gives rise to various order of goods, I think here's where we can go back to Thomas's treatment of natural law, the content of natural law, in question 94, article 2, that the good of life, of family and procreation, of fairness and association, of truth and even honor to God can be the basis for respecting the pursuit of human flourishing by each individual. So Maritain's basic idea here is that rights are acknowledgement that some goods are due any human being if he is to become who or what he is called to become. If he doesn't have certain things or goods, like food or freedom of inquiry, then he doesn't have the sine qua non as a prerequisite for his flourishing. And by the same token, then, man has duties based on the rights of others. So this idea of human rights developed by Maritain and Simone is traced back to 
equality as unity in nature. And by looking at the common nature we share with others, it will provide us with a sound basis for human rights. Maritain, of course, gives various lists of these rights in his book on natural law and the rights of man. He has a brief account of it in Man in the State. And I think this is also the foundation of some of the writings of John Paul II, following Paul VI, who was deeply influenced by Maritain, to take over this new account of liberal democracy and respect for human rights. One of the big questions here, once we have a teaching of rights, is what does this mean for the question of social justice? Maritain says one of the great functions of the modern state is to pursue social justice. I think here is where we can find some useful things done by Yves Simon on democratic equality. First of all, he says that we certainly must observe strict equality or commutative justice when it comes to matters of life and fair exchange, that these should be a matter of strict justice. But he also says that it's part of modern liberal democracy to have what he calls an egalitarian tendency. That is, there is a dynamism within liberal democracy to seek to embody a greater equality of distribution. Now this, of course, becomes another controversial matter, but I think it's important to see how Maritain and Simone try to affirm the rightness of this pursuit, but also understand its limits. Simone's account, again, as I said, begins with the notion of strict equality with the tendency to greater equal achievement. He says we want to fulfill positive goods like education and health care, that democracies do seek to have progress in the distribution of these goods. But he's very sensitive to the question of state control and says that the principle of subsidiarity should prevail so that the state's pursuit of social justice should not destroy the very foundation of social order in the families, the schools, and so on. It's a very vexing question how to work this out prudentially as a statesman, but I think Simone and Maritain have provided the basic principles, and Simone has more detail in his book on various particular issues which can be pursued. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.